0: In my family, there is one really famous Disney film that none of my kids, to my knowledge, have seen. Uh, It's a movie that has perhaps the best soundtrack of all Disney movies. Um, But my wife and I have a profound objection to what feels a lot like the core message of the film. Uh, This movie is none other than the infamous Little Mermaid. Anybody seen the Little Mermaid? Okay, yeah, I've seen it a bunch. Um, The Little Mermaid, just as a nutshell, is about a mermaid named Ariel who is dissatisfied with her aquatic life and goes to the surface, falls in love at first sight. We probably should talk about that again later um, with a guy named Eric who's a human and then saves him from drowning and then is so incredibly head over heels Uh, for this guy that she's never had a conversation with that she goes to the sea witch and is given three days um, to either get him to kiss her and fall in love with her or To lose her soul to the sea witch. Okay, Uh, and then I just want to play a little bit of that Conversation so I can explain our objection to this film. Will you play that for me true? Have we got a deal?
1: If I become human I'll never be with my father or sisters again.
0: That's right. But you'll have your
1: man. <laughs> Life's full of tough choices. In it. <laughs> oh, and there is one more thing. We haven't discussed the subject of payment. You can't
0: get something for nothing, you know.
1: But I don't have it. I'm not asking much. Just a token, really, a trifle.
0: You'll never even miss it. What I want from you is. your voice.
1: My voice? You've got it, sweet cakes. No more talking, singing, zip. But without my voice, how can I. You'll have your looks.
0: Your pretty face. And don't underestimate the importance of the body language. Ha! The men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yes, on land, it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. And after all, dear, what is idle prattle for?
1: Come on, then, all that
0: impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can but they don't and, and fall on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a mad. Come on. Oh, we're stopping there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I know she's the villain, but this is kind of what this movie is about. It's about uh, Ariel convincing this guy she's never really met to fall in love with her without the ability to speak. So he can't learn anything about her... Intelligence, or her sense of humor or her creativity or her values or her interests, what he can see is just what he can see. Uh, and while it's quite a fun movie and the music is great, um, we don't really want our kids to grow up with that message, right? We don't want our kids growing up thinking uh, that what you can see about a person is all there is or that you're going to fall in love with someone based on just how they look. Uh, By the way, as a culture, um, though this is in a lot of our fairy tales, we kind of recognize the danger of judging by appearance, don't we? We have all kinds of little aphorisms or sayings about that. Um, See if you can help me finish these. We say, don't judge a book by its... great. We say, appearances can be... deceiving, great, okay. We say, um, looks aren't everything, okay, great. So. Here's the problem. We have all these little reminders, but we don't really believe them. We are almost hardwired to judge by appearance. Now, there's been a lot of interesting research done about this in the last uh, few decades, uh, and it turns out that just on the level of attractiveness, appearance matters a great deal. Attractive people are significantly more likely to get called back for interviews they're significantly more likely to get hired, even if they only sound attractive on the phone. Um, they are more likely to make more money. Um, oddly enough, if, uh, in, in school, at least in the university where the study was done, if you were a woman and attractive, you were likely to get better grades. If you were a man, it didn't seem to matter. I don't know, maybe there's a double standard. Uh, You're more likely to get elected if you're attractive, and of course, you're more likely to be selected as a romantic partner, uh, this whole love at first sight idea. Uh, But judging by appearances is about more than just attractiveness, right? We judge people by what clothes they wear, by what car they drive, by who they spend time with, by whether they seem charismatic and fun and interesting or not. Now uh, we, we judge people by appearances almost instinctively, even though we know it's wrong, even though we have all these sayings that remind us not to do it. And I'm reminded that even godly people do this. Right? Even godly people tend to judge others in superficial ways. Samuel is an amazingly godly man. Right? Samuel is not only the prophet of the Lord, but he has had a bad experience of selecting somebody based on appearance. Remember that Saul is tall, but not a great king, right? Um, and, And here comes Samuel, sent by God to find the next king of Israel. And he meets Jesse's firstborn son, right? He's the oldest and the tallest and the biggest and the strongest. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. And then God says to Samuel, no, I have rejected him. Don't look at His stature. Don't look at um, the outward appearance the Lord judges by the heart. This is a really interesting moment in Scripture. Uh, There are many people that argue that in the, the story at least of 1 and 2 Samuel, this is the pivotal point where we switch from the the negative story of rejecting God as king and then having an unfaithful king like Saul to the positive story of David as an example for all the leaders to follow. And in this moment, we're told that what God loves about David is not his outward appearance, but something related to his heart. Some interesting little details in this moment. Did you notice that there are seven sons that are passed before Samuel, before David is even called in. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion, right? So if you are Samuel and you come before the Lord and the first really impressive-looking guy isn't it, and none of the next six or seven guys are it, after seven sons, you're thinking, maybe God sent me to the wrong house. There's nobody else standing in the wings. Is there anybody else, he says. And Jesse says, well, there's one more guy, but he's such you know, so unimpressive, I didn't even bother to invite him to the meal, right? When you told me to get my sons, I didn't even think about getting him. Samuel says, well, you probably should bring him now. When, when David shows up, we're told uh, that God says to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. The Lord looks at the heart. Oh, by the way, this is fun. You notice what it said about David when he finally showed up? Now, he was ruddy, which means um, uh, kind of red. This is the same word that's used to describe Esau, right? So red hair or red complexion or something. Uh, He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Isn't it interesting that that detail gets dropped in? I mean, this is God's story, but it's told by people, right? And so God's perspective is, I love his heart. But the human authors of 1 Samuel couldn't avoid mentioning the fact that they thought he was a good-looking guy too, right? Because we just can't let the appearance thing go, right? It's so important to us. So what does it mean when God says he looks at the heart? What does it mean to judge not by outward appearance but by the heart? Uh, In Scripture, the the word heart usually refers to someone's identity, right? It's it's often interchangeable with soul. It means their character or their sense of self. Sometimes, as we think of it, it can mean their love, their love for others, or what they love, or who they love, or how they love. Uh, And I think all of those ideas are in the background here, but I think there's one other really interesting component of the heart that really shapes this story for me, and I think it's this idea that God looks at the heart as our potential. He looks at the heart as our potential. And here's why I say that. Up to this point, what has David done? He has walked in the room, right? That's 100% of what we know about David up to this point is that. He walked in the room. That's it. We don't know if he has been going to church every Sunday or prays on a regular basis or is kind to the poor or helpful to small animals. All we know is that God sees something in him that nobody else does. God sees this incredible potential for what David might do. So much so that the Bible says earlier, David is the man after God's own heart, God's own identity and character and soul. Something about David's potential grabs God's heart. So I want to know, is there any chance of us coming to see others the way God sees? Is there any chance of us seeing the heart and not seeing the outward appearance? And and I'm going to grant that this is really hard. Uh, in fact, throughout Scripture, we're told again and again, this seems to be where we struggle, right? And, and in fact, there's a, several passages in the New Testament where Jesus is meeting with people and they're asking Him questions, and we're told, but Jesus knew their hearts, right? Jesus knew why they were asking and what was going on behind those questions. He knew their identity, their character, and their potential. Can we learn that? Can we learn to look at people's hearts before we see their clothes, their car, their skin, their bone structure, their rap sheet, their resume. I think this is something we have to be trained to do. There's a book by George MacDonald called um, The Curate's Awakening. A a curate is an old word for a pastoral assistant or a pastor. And it tells the story of a guy named... uh, Thomas Wingfold uh, Thomas Wingfold is a young man who goes into the ministry because it's a job, and he needs a job. And he's placed in his first small parish church, and he gets there, and he immediately has a crisis of faith. He realizes that he doesn't really know God, doesn't really have a relationship with God. And in the midst of this crisis of faith, he has a second problem. His sort of disconnect with God and his general selfishness leads him to start plagiarizing other people's sermons. And after a few weeks of this, he receives a letter from a member of his church that uh, he doesn't know very well who says, Pastor, I know those sermons aren't yours. I've heard them from other priests in our community. Realizing this could ruin him, um, Thomas Wingfold goes and meets with this other man whose name is Joseph Polwarth. Joseph Polwarth, happens to be a a significantly malformed person. He'd had all kinds of birth defects. He's he's, um, unusually short, and his face is defigured. His arms and legs aren't of the shapes to which we're accustomed. Uh, And the church and most people had avoided him either as misfortunate or as maybe um, bad luck. But Thomas is forced into an encounter with Joseph Uh, And he discovers pretty quickly that Joseph has this incredible faith. And as they meet over the coming weeks and months and years, Joseph slowly helps Thomas realize that outwardly he is a very handsome, young, successful guy. And inwardly he is profoundly broken. And Thomas comes to realize that Joseph, who outwardly looks profoundly broken, inwardly is this shining man of God. And their journey together is slow and difficult and comes finally to the point where Thomas accepts Christ into his life because he works at recognizing his potential. That Joseph and Jesus see in him what he never saw in himself. I, I love this idea that we have to work at seeing people's hearts, we have to work at seeing their potential, at seeing how God sees them, and over time come to recognize that they are more than we imagined they might be. Uh, it's July 4th, and we celebrate our independence today, and we celebrate um, particularly our desire to represent ourselves, right? To say, um, we don't want a king or a nobility making decisions for us. We want to we be represented by ourselves So I I listened to a podcast recently um, by Malcolm Gladwell. He talked about um, this guy uh, named Adam Conkright who lives in Bolivia and works with uh, democratic lotteries and student governments. It's really a fascinating idea. I don't have time to do justice to right now, but the the simple idea is, he says, um, the way that we do elections, and he's particularly interested in student government, right? So high school presidents, class presidents, that sort of thing. So, the way we do um, government is really based on appearance. It's really based on hey, we want somebody who looks good, who's a good glad hander, who can be real friendly, who can get in front of people and maybe give a good speech or is good in a debate. And then we elect them to be our student body president or tres- class secretary or, or treasurer. And it turns out that those jobs have nothing to do with giving speeches or glad handing or the, the skills that we are selecting for are not the skills they need to be successful. And so we are getting people that aren't always good at those jobs, and we're also um, missing out on all kinds of people that might have potential to be good. So he had a crazy idea. He started doing democratic lotteries in these schools in Bolivia. They would literally have a jar, and you'd come through and pick a bean out of it. And if you were one of the eight people to get a purple bean, uh, then bada boom, bada bing, you're on student government. No speeches, no elections, no glad-handing, no recounts, none of that stuff. And he said, yeah, of course we had some people that weren't successful. But we have people who aren't successful who get elected too. Um, but what it honored was this idea that, that we have this incredible potential within us. Uh, and that it can be obscured by just the, the normal process of judging by appearance. Uh, And then, of course, just for fun, he extrapolated and said, this is not an idea that's going to work on a national scale, but um, we love this idea of representation, right? Just out of uh, theory, if we had a Democratic election for president, I'm sorry, a Democratic lottery for president in the United States, everybody's name goes into a hat, uh, and we pick a different name every four years, um, what percentage of those presidents would be female? The answer is half, right, if you're you know, half. And I thought, well, that, that does sound kind of representative. Um, and I wonder how often we disregard the potential of people, right? And uh, In our personal lives, in our systems, um, we are in desperate need to be trained to see the heart and not the outward appearance. So here's where I think that begins Uh, ironically, it begins with ourselves. It begins with seeing ourselves the way Jesus does. So we get this weird moment where Samuel shows up at David's house and he gets all the brothers and the father and the mom and the whole family together and he says, "Let's let's see the people pass before me and they finally get David and he gets up and he has a horn of oil and he pours it on David's head and then they have dinner and he leaves. And if you're David, you're thinking, what the heck? just happened, right? Okay, remember, in this point in the Old Testament, the only things that are anointed with oil are the tabernacle and the priests who serve in it. The only other person in the history of the Bible who's been anointed with oil was Saul, and he was anointed like David by Samuel in a secret ceremony that almost nobody heard about. Samuel doesn't say, hey, David, you're going to be the next king. He just anoints him with oil has dinner and goes on his merry way. And I love this idea uh, that in this moment, as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he gets this sense um, that something about his life changes, that he's meant for something great. He doesn't know what it is yet. He just knows that God has picked him. God sees some potential in him. And I wonder if when David plays the harp to drive out the evil spirit, or when David stands before Goliath, or when David has the opportunity to kill Saul but doesn't do it, or when David is trying to put a nation together that's been torn apart, I wonder if he goes back to this moment and he says, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing that God picked me for. Maybe this is the potential that God saw me. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. And Then I come to this beautiful passage in 1 Peter, where Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And I think we have been anointed. That's what our baptism is. It's an anointing by God. We have received the same Holy Spirit that David did. Why? Because God sees some extraordinary potential in us. And it's so easy for us to say, well, you know, if everybody knew me like I know me, they wouldn't think I could do all these great things. But God does, right? God knows everything we've ever done. Uh, God knows that we are more than we choose to be. We are also who He thinks we could be. And if we could perhaps begin to see ourselves that way, I wonder how it would affect how we see everybody else. Could we see everybody else as who they could be if they too lived into God's calling in their life? I came across a a great little um, sermonette about this idea of God's seeing our hearts, seeing our potential, and I want to share this with you.
1: My life is incredibly insignificant. I'm a tiny person on a small planet in a very large universe. My life is short. My money, education, and accomplishments are temporary. I can easily be replaced. My employer can find another person to do my job. Let's face it, even my cat can survive without me. But God can't. See, I know this because he stepped down from his throne and made earth his home. Rejected and despised, he bore my selfishness, murders, and lies, carrying them to the grave, making me the receiver of divine grace. Now, now I see my worth through the eyes of the universe. There's something bigger at play here, bigger than men. Scripture claims that the created accused the creator, and the universe is merely its spectator. You and me? Our lives are center stage in this story. We are the drama. We, the receivers of divine grace and the life-changing spirit. We who have been baptized by fire and water stand and live before men and angels. See, creation waits to see if in our testimony, the righteousness of God will be vindicated. So I refuse to be ruled by materialism, by circumstance, or in search of the accolades of men. No self-seeking is allowed to dictate my actions. For I'm willing to be made a fool for Christ's sake because I realize that I live on a stage set before men and angels. And my purpose is to glorify God. To glorify God. See, let me break it down for you. My life is meant to vindicate the character of the Creator before men and angels. My life
0: is incredibly significant. Your life is meant to vindicate the character of the Creator. God has this vision of you. He knows your heart. He knows your potential. Uh, And He believes that potential is limitless. He believes you can be a woman or a man after His own heart, that your character and your identity and your love could be like His character and identity and love. What if we, choosing to walk by faith and not by sight, believed that too? What if we believed it about the people around us? What if we believed uh, that the heart of every person we meet beats with the potential of a God who thinks their value is limitless? How would it change how we live? How would it change how we love? I pray that today we might have that privilege to give up on judging by appearances, to walk by faith and not by sight, and to see ourselves and others as God sees us through the heart. Thanks be to him. Amen.